You're listening to Legal Tech Academy. Podcast that inspires legal professionals to make a difference in the sector, but being more than just a lawyer. My name is Iga Kurowska and I'm sitting down with inspirational individuals from all over the world to talk about their projects, the lessons they've learned, their views on hot upcoming trends and many more. Together we discuss how to make a change in the legal sector. Welcome to yet another episode of Legal Tech Academy podcast. Today, our guest, directly from Manchester, Eamon McCann, will discuss the misconceptions about legal design. Firstly, however, she will explain what that concept means and how it can improve the day-to-day of lawyers and in-house lawyers. I leave you with Eamon and Roman and enjoy the discussion. The first very, very basic questions uh, for, for our, our participants. What actually is, is legal design? Because there are many misconceptions about this idea. The starting point for me is design thinking before you even start to introduce the word legal, because I think that's where a lot of the misconceptions start. My mom, for example, was a designer and everything that she approached <laughs> involve design and everything that we do whether we realize it or not at one point has simply been an idea in someone's head and is now in a tangible form but there was a process that people went through in order for products um you know different things that we have in our world for them to become it was a design thinking process for them to come into fruition um i mean the way that i would kind of think of legal design is that it's putting the the kind of it's a very human-centered approach but it's very much about always thinking about the end user so that empathy overarches everything essentially and I think because law is unique in the sense not unique but one of those sectors that is unique because it is you know inhabited by lawyers you know, the documentation, the platforms have been designed by lawyers. And up until very recently, the idea of bringing in a designer, an artist, a data scientist into the world of law would have been kind of unthinkable. Um, And I think that, you know, we are now at a stage where people are starting to talk an awful lot more about legal design. But then, as you say, the more that people talk about it, there are obviously kind of misconceptions as well. I think that in my case, my first and biggest misconception about uh, legal design was that it's something connected with this uh, nice uh, graphic uh, contracts, uh, with this nice picture in co- pictures in contracts, or only plain language in contracts. But I guess that it's not uh, what legal design is about. I think that you that you have noticed uh, many uh, other misconceptions uh, of of this idea of legal design and generally design thinking in the practice of law. So <clears throat> what are the most common ones? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've touched on it there. I think when people think of legal design, they think that it is about creating visuals and perhaps putting in little pictures. Um, and 
that there was someone actually referred to it as, um, you know, law for dummies, which of course it is not at all. Um, you know, for me, legal design is about making the practice of law more accessible. You, you know, when whenever I think, I think this is a really good example. Um, I had to look over a shareholders agreement, uh, which my husband asked me to look over. And as I said, I used to be a lawyer. I was a lawyer for 11 years and I honestly did not know what they were trying to say. I had to read it and reread it. And a lot of the language in agreements, not just in contracts, but in any form and any legal document is, is really inaccessible. And you shouldn't need to be legally trained to be able to understand what is the core message that's in an agreement or a, or a document. Um, so aside from the fact that, you know, as you say, a lot of people believe that it only relates to contracts and how you can kind of change them to be more like, to be more visual and more of a flowchart. But, you know, the law is a very vast area, as you know, which encompasses, you know, family law, litigation, etc. And design thinking should come into every part of that. And I think that's where, you know, you see that interplay between legal design and, and legal technology. Um, I've worked for three different legal tech companies and the design and the functionality of those platforms is still very much married with legal design and design thinking, because it's at the end of the day, you're thinking about what what does the end user want? What are the pain points? And what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And I think there's, and I can't remember who, who talked about this, but it's kind of quite a famous quote, which is not to kind of ask a user what their problems are, but just watch them and study them. Because, you know, like most of us, we have a habit of saying that this is, you no, know, this is my problem. This is the bit that I, I really struggle with. But if someone actually observed us, they would probably observe that actually we struggle with something completely different. And I think that is a massive part of it as well. And going back to my earlier point, which is because law has historically just always been lawyers, no one has ever come in really objectively and watched and observed and thought, well, why are you doing that that way? I can really see that you struggle with, you know, that communication or that workflow or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think a lot of legal design is really about observation as it is with, with any kind of design thinking. And if you take litigation as an example, um, I used to work in litigation and the amount of times, <laughs> you know, whether I was creating a bundle for, for court and thinking I am charging for the R to stand and copy and create this bundle and this, you know, suitcases of, of paper files to bring to court. And someone watching me, I'm sure would have thought, why is she doing that? She trained as a lawyer to work on complex legal challenges. And, you know, obviously now we have all of these platforms, including the company I work with that creates electronic bundles and is desi designed to expedite that workflow. And just to make life easier so that you can, you're still getting on with, with the law. But so it's not just about the messaging, you know, what we talked about earlier in terms of a contract that's easier to read, is more accessible, but the actual workflows in place that are enhanced by 
the legal technology, which has been designed in tandem with legal design, essentially, which has the, the end user at the heart of it, really. Okay, uh, great. You mentioned about, about litigation. I'm, I'm uh, really quite curious uh, um, if, if you could uh, give us some any examples of how actually you can apply um, design thinking in this, in this process. And how we, how can you define the end user? So that my my understanding is that the end user might be uh, the judge or the the jury. Am I correct? Yeah, that's such a such a, such a good point. So I think you, you whenever you are designing it, you have to take into account that it might be a paralegal, it might be a judge, it might be a highly stressed litigator, or it might be an expert witness. And I think that's such a good question because how do you design something? knowing that it's going to have different types of users. And so one of the things that, that we did on our plat platform, for example, was to create different parameters and different permissions. So there will only be certain bits that can be obviously accessed by, you know, perhaps it would only be within your litigation team, um, but also there's ongoing training all the time. And I think that's a massive part of it. And an, a, probably another myth around, more around legal tech than legal design, which is, you know, that you have the technology, that it's a SaaS product, and that there isn't the human support. And in those ways, you do need, you do need, in that instance, for example, training. And the support team that, that we have by way of examples, you know, they offer training around the clock, really, for, for judges, for witnesses, etc., um, but yeah, and I think that that's an, an important point for, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Legal Design Lab in Stanford Uni, there's Margaret Hagen. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I, I just, I think it's amazing that, you know, everything that they do is very much focused on, you know, we are going to be, you're going to be dealing with completely different end users. And for example, and one thing that I think is really important is that we all learn and retain information in different ways. So even at that level, you might have two lawyers, two paralegals, two judges, but they're going to actually process information in a completely different way. And how do you ensure that you're covering all of those bases? And I think it just comes down to, you know, I've seen people do this in practice where you've actually got, you've got the lawyers, you've got the designers, and you've got the, the focus groups with all the different users within them. And it's the only way that you can really understand, you know, how to ensure that it is tailored to them, really. So, Aymar, from that, what you, what, you have, what you have explained, I understand that legal design is mainly about humanizing the, the law. Uh, what I mean by that is that we as lawyers should remember that law it's not uh, only about procedures, um, not only about wording of documents, uh, but it's uh, also uh, about the people uh, which, are, which are involved in the process of the enforcement of law. Yeah, completely. And I think that we are, I actually wrote a piece on this yesterday. I think we're in a very unusual position at the moment because we're very aware that we're going through a, a digital and a tech revolution. So it's not as if it happened and we take a stand back. As historians, we are kind of the user and the historian at exactly the same time. And I think that gives us a massive opportunity because it means that, you know, whenever you think back to 
the the kind of the origins of technology and and the internet, for example, it wasn't particularly user friendly. And it's very easy as someone who has created something to say, well, you know, the users just aren't picking this up properly or they're failing to understand. You know, and that's completely myopic because there's a reason why people are failing to understand because it's not connecting enough to the human. And, you know, there's an awful lot of talk and this is getting into going off on a tangent, but, you know, there's an awful lot of talk about, you know, the, what does the future of, of technology look like in terms of, you know, AR, VR, metaverse, etc. And there is an awful lot, I don't know an awful lot about it, and I'm not sure how large the gap is between the concept and, and what that'll look like in practice um, and how much of an impact that will have on legal, for example. Um, but one thing that I can see is that there is an opportunity because we are able to reflect and create at the same time. I, I feel at the moment that you can ensure that the human side of it is there. And I think that's a massive part of it. And I think those companies that the tech companies that are able to see that um, are the ones that will will really, really succeed. And I think the law firms that are really embracing cross-pollination, you know, in the sense of bringing in people from all different sectors are also the ones that will really, really stand out. Great, great, Amar. Uh, my, my next question will be, uh, what are actually uh, the benefits of applying legal design uh, in legal work? And also, how can you actually convince lawyers to, to change their way, way of thinking into more design thinking? Yeah, I mean, I could have a really cynical answer, which <laughs> would relate to, um, you know, profitability. But I think, you know, it, I suppose it, whatever sector you're in, you have to kind of make a business case for, you know, something new that you're bringing in, a new initiative. But we, you know, you have clients and consumers who are very, very aware these days, and it's very easy to just go off and find someone else and to find a competitor. And I also think that we're, because we're so used to apps and websites that are visually very pleasing, very accessible, if, if we come across something that is too difficult to use, we'll just switch elsewhere. And I think that that kind of mindset applies as much to me deciding which, which app to use and which to go with as me deciding whether or not I'm going to go with one you know, lawyer or another. And it doesn't matter. You know, people talk about, you know, individuals versus businesses, but the businesses who, you know, are dealing with the law firms are, are people at the end of the day, which goes back to your point about the human side. So I think, you know, if, if law firms are kind of embracing legal tech and they are innovating at a really rapid rate, they risk losing I believe anyway they risk losing that human element if they don't incorporate the principles of design thinking yes I I completely agree about what you said about legal technology because uh, uh, legal technology is something what is very fashionable now however I think that lawyers uh, are sometimes too much focused on the best technology Rather, uh, what will be the outcome of the uh, application of such technology? Thinking about the design of the whole environment, uh, of, of the outcomes of the um, use of technology is, is, is very important. Um, if, if you could uh, uh, give us like three examples 
of how uh, legal design uh, changes the practice of law. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm going to sound really obvious here, but I think with contracts and agreements, I mean, you've I've just, I'm sure everyone has seen these when, you know, and I, I don't work in the world of, of commercial contracts, but whenever you think of the amount of, there's an awful lot of waste in law. I think that's my kind of takeaway. There's an awful lot of wasted language that doesn't need to be there. And in the same way that technology can streamline you know, workflow and processes, legal design can streamline the wording. And I think you've seen some amazing examples of, um, of businesses who have completely embraced it and they have changed their employment contracts, for example, to, I don't know how many pages, maybe 15 pages into a one pager. And even though, and that's it, the kind of going back to the start again, it's not making law all kind of fluffy <laughs> and nice to have. The, the core message is there. And, you know, at the end of the day, a contract is basically about what does, what does a business, what is a business committing to? And what are the kind of the outcomes going to be if, you know, God forbid, there is some kind of litigation? What are the things in place? And in the same way with the contract, what are people agreeing to and what kind of protective measures are there? And if all of that can go into one page in a way that people can actually digest really quickly, then I think it's completely amazing. I've seen lots of um, examples of that. Um, the other ones that I think are amazing are using basically design thinking to um, ensure or to kind of to foster access to justice. And I think, you know, the, the lab in, in Stanford, for example, is a brilliant example of it. Um, and if anyone hasn't looked at Margaret Hagen's work, I would encourage you to do so. I think the stuff that they're doing there is absolutely amazing. Um, but it's basically what, you know, what I was saying, it's bringing together focus groups, it's redesigning the processes. So, you know, if you think of the contracts one, which is kind of redesigning the flow of a contract and then the access to justice is kind of redesigning the, the kind of the flow almost of communication and how people actually access justice um, at all. Um, but I think that then you've also got examples where, and it, even though it may not be, people may not technically describe it as, as legal design, but the tech companies that I've worked with, the way that the roadmaps are set out for, you know, for the companies that I've worked with and that I work with at the moment, they're all designed in a way that have, you know, the kind of the, the pain points and the solutions and the end user the whole way along and every step of the way, you know, you're constantly stopping and asking for feedback. Is this what you, is this going to work for you? Why does this not work for you? And so you've got a mixer of, you know, streamlining, um, you know, workflows, processes, communication, words. And I just think it's incredibly powerful. I think that um, that one uh, of the um, of, of very useful applications of legal design may be legislation. Um, do you see uh, that it's gaining any popularity? Uh, for example, in the UK, where where you live, that uh, legislators are also applying such such idea of legal design. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm not. It's not something that I have really come across that much and I'm sure that there will be people who will be incredibly knowledgeable on this um, 
What I have seen though is a real push for digitization in the UK. Um, you know, from and I don't know how much this this has been discussed. I'm sure it's been discussed in other jurisdictions as well. But for example, the use of smart contracts, um, cryptocurrencies, and just the overall digitization of the court system, and also beyond that, um, there was a recent interim report published by the Law Commission on um, electronic signing, etc. So even though that may not sound like legal design, and once again, I do believe that's a misconception, it is still about redesigning how we work within legal. Um, in terms of legislation, to be honest, it's not something I know that much about. Okay. Um, and when when is you 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 work you worked or you work with with many lawyers? Uh, so, from your experience, uh, are uh, lawyers, for example, in the UK, open to um, to to legal design and design thinking now? <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm going to sound like a lawyer when I answer, but I think it depends. <laughs> um, it just depends on who you're speaking to, and I think. It's interesting because before I joined Trialview, I was working with um, a lot of um, GCs and in-house lawyers. And I find that even though, um, you know, general counsel, COSEX, in-house lawyers are under an incredible amount of pressure and also have, you know, very, very tight budgets, they, they seem to be, and I'm just making a complete generalization here, but they seem to be very, very open to the idea of design thinking um, and also to embracing new legal tech products. Now that I'm in the world of litigation, so I'm speaking a lot to partners and associates and litigation teams, it has never ever come up in conversation. <laughs> um, and I, I understand that there's, you know, it's basically like comparing two completely different professions, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can, you know, we might all have been, I'm not a lawyer anymore, but when I was a lawyer, you know, in the work that I did, you know, my job was completely different to friends who worked in M&A and corporate. Um, but I think, I think that it, it, there are um, those who perhaps have the luxury um, of an innovation um, hub or team or transformation managers that actually allocate time for them to look at things like design thinking and legal tech and law firms Yes, they are quite open to it, but I would say that those that are perhaps stressed for or pressed for time and incredibly stressed and pressurized, it may not even be something that has really even entered into their psyche at this point. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, okay, and uh, you you mentioned that you used to work for a legal technology company. And actually, legal tech is something what we are extremely focused about as, as a legal tech academy. So uh, could you give us some examples of how uh, legal design and legal technology uh, intersect? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, two ways of looking at it. So there's the internal part of it, you know, where you've got the design thinking that sits within the way that the technology is designed itself. Um, and one thing, you know, I, I worked at a company called Samize um, before I joined Trialview. And, you know, the, the dev team were so passionate about the, the UX and the user experience. 
you know, to, I mean, the, the amount of time that went into that was, was incredible, really, because all I could think about was what will it feel like for, for the end user? Um, and they went through the, the kind of the design thinking methodology over and over again, every time there was, you know, an overhaul of the platform or there was an introduction of, of kind of new functionality. Um, and then I think then the external sense is that how do you then marry up design thinking with, with the technology? And I think that there is a place for both. Um, but I feel as though it has to come in the order of, you know, you have to start off with, you know, your the people first. People always talk, you know, the, the people, the processes, then the technology. And for me, the design thinking is, is right there with the people part of it at the very start. And it's only when you've gone through all of that process that then you can look at what kind of technology technology is needed. I mean, there's no point in going back to the contracts example. If you have a platform that automates, um, you know, contract extraction, and it's through from, I don't know, from early negotiation through to signature. But if all of the content within the contract itself is not accessible, you're automating a workflow, but you've still got the fundamental issue of an inaccessible piece of legal drafting. And so I think it has to come first. And then the technology to me is a layer that sits on top of it. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting question. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for all these answers. Well, the thing is that I, I work in corporate matters and my question is as a whole. Um, taking care of different subsidiaries in uh, Europe, Africa, America. We have to follow that. We uh, I have used uh, something called Legal Swift, in which obviously you have to enter all the information and afterwards you have a, a view of the whole, like the appointments, like uh, the actionaries, and everything like that. So it will allow you to control and to have a whole view of the status of the companies. Okay. Um, I mean, I suppose just to be clear, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not a legal designer um, by background. Um, so I don't have experience in terms of, you know, how that would, how that would look, but I would imagine that what you're really asking, perhaps I'm totally misunderstanding is the kind of the management of, of different, so many different kind of, subsidiaries different people different departments exactly exactly workflows. exactly yeah That's i it. think that i think that is such a challenge isn't it because i mean do you know it's funny because we we talk to law firms that are you know from the outside to me anyway really streamlined like well-oiled machines and then you find out that actually within them everybody is doing completely different things you know and i think that you know teams end up very much siloed within within their firms. And I'm sure that happens as well in, in large corporates. And I think the starting point there would have to be, you know, that feeling of you need to nearly kind of excavate everything and all the processes first. Um, and I don't know whether that's more kind of going into the legal ops side of things um, where you're kind of examining more the, the kind of the processes and stuff before then you look at legal design and then the legal technology. Okay, got it. Because a matter of fact, when, when I have used it, sometimes you see that 
uh, we have problems like if, if it is not fit, you are not going to have the information, obviously. Uh, how to compare, uh, make like uh, different comport, um, divisions, uh, different levels. Like for example, uh, having access to different levels of uh, information, like from main offices, from each country, from uh, like uh, the paralegals. I mean, I have seen like in that point we're not not there. Yeah. Already. Yeah, and I mean, it's useful, but well. Yeah, and I think that just really is a is a challenge, isn't it? Whenever you've got so many different people at different levels, um, but I think fundamentally it comes down to understanding what it is that, you know, it, whether it is that each team has its own objectives or whether there is one that everyone is kind of you're aiming for together, and they're going to be they're obviously two different things, but there's going to be a point where those. Um, will kind of merge together. But I would say that the starting point would be examining, you know, is everybody in the right position in the first place? Uh, what are the processes in place that, that need to maybe be changed? Uh, I mean, gosh, there's an awful lot to dive into on that, I think. Okay, got it. So the processes are the essential because they have to be clear. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me, and I'm not sure, but I imagine it's kind of a, a legal ops um kind of discussion perhaps thank you very much uh, we have the next question uh, do you have any recommendations of courses or reading to understand service legal design yeah i mean i think the people or the websites that i always go on to that i think are so interesting is um uh, I, I don't have them i will share them with you but people like stefania passera um who people may know of already um, Margaret Hagen, as I said, over in Stanford, and also um, Marie Potel-Saville as well in, in Paris. I think the stuff that she's doing is absolutely amazing. I think she's a really good example of a lawyer who transitioned over to being an absolutely fantastic legal designer. Uh, okay, we have also a question. Uh, what, would, what would be the first step of implementation of legal design into a legal department or law firm? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first step has to be um, buy-in. <laughs> you know, I think it's just kind of getting people on board before beforehand. Um, and then after that, it's going to be about understanding how that's going to be rolled out and who's going to be responsible for it initially. Um, and to me, it's I suppose by analogy with a, a new legal tech um, product, you know, you're only going to see uptake within a law firm or a team if you have, you know, an internal champion and if you have actually, if you do the internal marketing. Um, from a legal design perspective, I think the first thing has to be understanding, starting at the very basics, you know, having brainstorming sessions, having focus groups, that would bring in smaller groups within the, the larger legal team, and then really understanding what the, the pain points are and working out from there. Thanks for listening to our podcast episode about the misconceptions about legal design. Please follow us on social media to stay up to date with our publications, such as ebooks, as well as information about our events, such as meetups or releases like this podcast. Take care and see you next time.